today, we start a brand new series, and I'm really proud of my artwork um, that I did. I stole it, um, and, um, and this represents the upper room, the Last Supper. We are going to be working through uh, the final teaching that Jesus gave His disciples as they had what we call the Last Supper. The disciples didn't know that it was going to be called the Last Supper. They just thought that it was the Passover meal. And by the way, just so that you know, Beck and I have been planning, and on Good Friday, we're not going to have a service. We're going to have dinners in people's homes. Except this year, we've actually scripted it out a little bit. And we're going to take some elements from the Passover meal. And one of the things that you'll realize is that uh, when we celebrate communion as a church on a Sunday morning, it is nothing like what they used to do for the Passover meal. It was a full meal. They used to have four cups of wine each, uh, and it was a deliberate thing. We're not going to do the wine stuff, um, but what we are doing is that we are going to uh, sup- uh, like really walk through um, the Passover meal uh, with some of the practices, try to get your kids involved, because that's what the Jewish people used to do. They used to have the kids, uh, especially the youngest kid, would actually have a part to play during the night, uh, um, in, in recounting the story of salvation, and um, it's going to be wonderful, and so that's going to be coming up on Good Friday evening, we'll be doing it through our lift groups, if you're not part of the lift group, uh, if you can't make any of the lift groups this semester, uh, join up with one of them for that night, because it's going to be, like, when we're looking through this, we're like, oh, this is going to be a special night. So anyway, that's Good Friday. We've got six weeks leading up, and um, the significance of um, this block of teaching is that uh, it's got lots of different passages that you, know, that you would probably have heard me or other preachers preach about, you know, the vine and the branches, about uh, how Jesus has gone away to prepare a place for us, all of these things, but when we put it together in one big block of teaching with an understanding of the themes um, that Jesus would have been focused on, and John as the writer of this gospel putting together, I think that we're going to see things with much greater depth. And my hope specifically is that we get to see Jesus more clearly. There's sometimes uh, uh, a lens that we get over our eyes on how we see Jesus because of certain emphases, certain things that we see in culture uh, through our lives. And I hope that through bringing this block of teaching together in one big block, it will take away some of those perspectives to see Jesus more clearly and to be inspired to live more fully for Jesus as we await His return. See, one of the points of uh, the last, uh, the, the, the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse, as it's sometimes called, is that Jesus was preparing his disciples hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to disappear for a few days. And you're not going to be able to follow me. You're not going to be able to see me in that. And Jesus is trying to tell them, get ready for what life is going to be without me for a little while. So I think that we can today, as we are waiting for Jesus to return, these words still ring true for us. Jesus is going to a place that we cannot go right now, but we will be able to follow him one day. And that is the theme of the Upper Room Discourse as we're going to unpack. So I'm really excited that we need to uh, dive into this um, to be able to follow Jesus, live our lives as 
we await His return. But this morning, we're actually not going to touch any of the upper room discourse itself. We're going to set the scene. Because when we read anything in the Bible, it is actually super important to try to understand the context of what is taking place. Because when we cherry-pick the Bible, when we take verses out of context and we just simply use them because they sound nice by themselves or they're so encouraging in and of themselves, uh, we lose the meaning and we can make things mean whatever we want it to. For example, many of us would have quoted uh, in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who has um, strengthened me. And then we don't study and go for the exam because I can do all things. And no, that's not the context of the verse. The context of the verse is Paul saying, I've been shipwrecked. I have been, I've been stoned. I have been whipped. And I can go through all of those things because Christ has strengthened me. So come on, if you want to quote that verse, I want to see you shipwrecked. I, want to, I don't want to see you stoned. Please don't get stoned. Um, but it's to suffer for Jesus. And, you know, even going back, not that long ago, about 80 years ago, uh, the Germans, in, in, in particular, the Nazis used the Bible to rationalize, to give meaning to their persecution of the Jewish people. They told the, uh, the world, we are doing God's work by committing genocide. That's how... We can take the Bible out of context and make it mean something that we want it to. And so we need to understand what the author's intention in writing these words down is so that we can faithfully interpret and follow what um, is being said. So, the Gospel of John. Now, Gospel simply means good news, and John was writing specifically about the good news of Jesus Christ, who brought about our salvation, right? And so, how many Gospels do we have in the Bible, people? Four. What are their names? Awesome! We've got some Christians in the house, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often called the synoptic gospels after the word synopsis. Synopsis means summary. And so, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they actually contain a lot of the same materials, and uh, they're written with a very similar conclusion, which is fantastic. But John decided to go a little bit on a different pathway. And so, uh, they have the synoptic gospels that are very alike, and then you have John's gospel, where 90%, 90% of the material is unique to his gospel and not like the other gospels. There's only a 10% overlap between what John wrote and what the other three gospels wrote. He wrote a very unique gospel, and so it stands apart from it. And John seemed to have a really important aim to prove that Jesus is the Messiah and that we need to believe in Him. There is an action to it. However, this idea of believing in the Messiah isn't just about, oh yeah, that makes sense. But one commentator writes it this way. He says, John wants his readers to see this knowledge as a challenge, a practical challenge to faith. And then when they believe, they will have life that when we believe in Jesus, we will have life. And that's where this is really close to our heart as a church because our vision is to see people inspired to live, but live in Jesus' life. John 10 verse 10 comes from this gospel where Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and life abundantly. And that is something that we focus on because when we believe in Jesus, 
The outcome is that we have life. That is John's whole thing. And so he's saying, believe, all right? So that's a key thing as John is writing. Now, John himself was a disciple of Jesus. And um, as many of us know, Jesus had a few different groups of disciples. There was the 120, and then there was the 70, and then there was the 12, and then there was the 3. John was part of the three, James, John, and Peter, Peter, James, and John. As we often uh, see in the Gospels, Jesus would take these three on uh, a little extra missions and extra teaching, and, and um, it's all really cool. But in researching, there's one thing I found out that was really quite interesting, is that it is likely that John is Jesus' first cousin. He wasn't just some rando that Jesus didn't know. John was actually one of Jesus' cousins. And this was likely from, uh, this is how we notice is likely, how we notice is from church tradition. Now, when we say the word church tradition, many of us go, oh, this is like you know, rumors. I think Jesus and John, right, they were cousins. No, no, that's not what church tradition is about. Church tradition is that there were these people who were very much connected to the early apostles. Uh, they were disciples of the original disciples, and they wrote stuff um, that was not considered biblical, uh, but is still stuff that helps us to understand what is going on. They didn't have the authority of Scripture, but they very much tell us a story of what is going on. And so, uh, just so that you know, I, I find this uh, uh, really awesome, um, but one of the original disciples of the disciples was a Pokemon. His name was Polycarp. And he splashed around a lot, and he gave lots of good teaching. Uh, but I think it was Polycarp's disciple, uh, who I think his name is Irenaeus, actually wrote that John and James were the sons of a woman named Salome. And Salome, again, according to church tradition, another church father's writings, said that Salome was married, the mother of Jesus' um, uh, sister. There you go. So... Um, when Jesus was born, um, his aunt, Salome, had a couple of sons named James and John. And so they likely, in Jewish custom, actually grew up together. Um, we do know that Jesus went away to Egypt for a little while, and there were all of these things. But likely, when they came back to the place, and remember that Jesus ministered very much in the area that he spent most of his life in, in, in the area of Nazareth and Galilee. And, and James and John uh, had uh, a fishing business that their dad owned, and they, they were actually probably reasonably well off because they owned a number of boats and hired a number of people, which tells us that this wasn't just a mom and pop little shop. This was actually probably a reasonably uh, medium-sized business. And so when Jesus came to James and John and said, hey, follow me, they weren't following a person they didn't know, but they were following their cousin. Now, I want you to think about this. How many of your cousins look up to you to the point of dying for you? How many of you have cousins who have disowned you the moment your parents have come down hard on you? How many of you have cousins that actually say, you know what, this is the Christ. So when you have cousins that actually literally be martyred for Jesus, something is going on. James was one of the first to die. 
as um, one of Jesus' apostles. His cousin was one of the first to, to, to stand before the Roman Empire and say, well, kill me now because I'm a follower of Jesus. And then you know John himself? John, they were like, we need to get rid of this guy. This is a dangerous dude. And so the Roman Empire decided to boil him alive in a vat of oil. They couldn't kill him. So they took, I have no idea what he would look like after. But they then exiled him to a prison island called Patmos. And it was on Patmos that John wrote the book of Revelation. This is who we're talking about. The first cousin who knew this man so well and saw that this was the Messiah. And so when we see that John writes in his gospel that I am the disciple that Jesus loved, we need to be careful about that. In fact, there are some people that decide to say that maybe James, uh, sorry, John and Jesus had some kind of gay relation. No, that's not what it was about. This was already his cousin. He knew this dude. He received the love probably of an older cousin. That's what they would have done. They would have spent time together. He would have been, he might even have, I don't know, because we don't know for sure the age difference and all that kind of stuff, but he might have even changed his nappies. He received the love of his cousin Jesus, but when he saw that this was also the Messiah, he said, I'm loved by God. When he said, I am a disciple Jesus loves, He's saying a theological statement, I have received the love of God. And then he writes this gospel for us, and he brings us into his ideas, his perspective, his experiences of who Jesus is and why Jesus is worth believing in. And that's how we get the gospel of John. And so John puts together this gospel and um, it's um, pretty interesting when we look at how he constructed this gospel. Um, there's one way to look at this. There are a number of ways that we could look at this, but one way is to break it up into four portions. And the first portion is the prelude, which is only 19 verses, John 1, 1 to 19. And in this, we have really famous passages, but extremely, extremely important passages where uh, John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, John doesn't write about Jesus being literally born. He just simply writes that Jesus has always been. And he was making a very important statement here, that in that day and that age, they were fighting against um, the heresy that Jesus was just a normal, uh, like another human being. And, 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 and they were fighting uh, that, that Jesus isn't, you don't need to follow all the kinds of stuff because Jesus was really just a man and da-da-da, and all of these theological fights. And John just goes, you know what? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know that John was probably writing to some Greeks because he uses the word word, which is logos, which is something that's really huge in the philosophical arguments of that day and that age. But the prelude that John was writing was basically to say, Jesus is God. And then a few verses later, I think in verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among men. And so his whole setup in the first 19 verses is to already show us that there is a God who was involved in the creation of the world. And this God loved the world so much that he became a man to serve us and to bring us into a saving knowledge of who he is. And so he's already set this up. And then for the next section, he then goes to explain how we can know this. 
And this next section is called the signs, S-I-G-N-S, signs. And John in particular does something really interesting. He records specifically seven miracles that Jesus does. And that's why many people call the Gospel of John uh, the Gospel of Signs, because there are seven signs. Some of these signs were also found in the other Gospels, but uh, many of them are not. For example, the first sign is that Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And, um, and so you have all of these seven signs, finishing with the resurrection of Lazarus, which is a public resurrection at the end. And what I, what I want to point out is that John actually writes at the end of his gospel that if we were to record everything that Jesus did, there would not be enough books in the world to contain it. So that tells me that he specifically chose seven, seven miracles to record in his gospel. And I think that that's very significant because in the Hebrew thought, seven is the number of perfection, is the number of completion, is the number that we take from creation that the world was perfectly created in seven days. And so I think John was making a statement by having seven signs uh, included in his gospel because I think he was trying to say, Jesus perfectly showed us that he is to be believed. Jesus perfectly showed us that he is the Messiah, that he is God. I mean, flipping heck, if someone is able to walk on water, uh, is able to uh, resurrect people from the dead, is able to heal uh, with just a, a word and a touch, the blind, the lame, you would go, you've got something on you, right? And so Jesus performed these seven signs that tell us that he is perfectly showcasing his messiahship. And all through these seven signs, John writes again and again that Jesus asked the people around him, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe? One such instance, which I love, is in John 11, verses 25 to 26. And this was at um, uh, Lazarus's uh, uh, raising. Um, and, and Jesus says to... Um, I can't remember, it was either Martha or Mary, and he says, whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? This was a theme that comes up again and again in John. Do you believe do you believe me? Do you believe the words that I'm saying? Do you believe the life that I'm living on your behalf? Do you believe what I'm trying to teach you? Do you believe what I'm trying to communicate to you? Do you believe? Because when you believe, you will have life. And so what happens after that is that we hit the next section, which is called the glory section. And the glory section is where the upper room discourse is found in. Because after Jesus performs his seven signs, he goes into Jerusalem. And we we're going to uh, have a bit of a, a feel for this on Palm Sunday. Every year uh, we can remember Palm Sunday as the day uh, that Jesus walked into Jerusalem, riding, on, oh, he didn't walk, he rode in on a donkey and there was all these palm leaves and everyone was singing hallelujah, uh, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and basically giving him a king's welcome. 
And so the glory segment starts with the glorious entry of the king, and then Jesus has the Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room, and uh, from there he gets arrested and crucified and raised again. And then finally we hit um, the fourth section, which is the epilogue, where John ties it all together. So why am I giving you all of this is because what I want you to notice is where the upper room discourse sits. It sits after the, the section of the signs. This is where it sits. It, it, it's, this is not teaching that Jesus was giving while still trying to convince the disciples to truly believe in him. He had done, according to John's um, flow, uh, he had perfectly showcased his messiahship, right? However, this is the sad thing in the book of John, because people still didn't believe. In fact, how the signs section finishes is in John chapter 12, verses 36 to 43. I want to read this to you. This is what it says. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he had heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He, being God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and in turn I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, his glory, Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So we have, after the seven signs, John himself writing a commentary about what has taken place so far. And he says that they did not believe. In fact, one uh, uh, Bible commentator, D.A. Carson, who is one of the New Testament scholars, preeminent New Testament scholars, he said that there was widespread, catastrophic unbelief amongst the Jews. Widespread, catastrophic unbelief. This is not just like, oh, yeah, okay, fine. This is like, for Carson, he was saying this was catastrophic. This was soul-destroying unbelief. This was really dangerous unbelief. Why? Because belief in Jesus would bring life. Therefore, unbelief in Jesus would bring death. John is extremely black and white about this. He's not like you can toy around with your belief and still receive a measure of life. No, he said, believe and have life. Don't believe and have death. That's what it is. And so when we hit the end of the signs section where Jesus had perfectly showcased his messiahship and why he deserved to be believed, and he says they did not believe, it was catastrophic. But I want you to look into this because this is hard stuff. Why did they not believe? It's because God blinded them and hardened their heart. And I think we need to actually camp on that for a little while because I think sometimes we struggle with this concept of belief and what it looks like and how I feel about things and all of that kind of stuff. 
What was John meaning when he pulls out Isaiah and says that Isaiah prophesied these things? Now, a couple of things to note. Isaiah foresaw the suffering servant. Isaiah, more than any of the Old Testament prophets, was given an insight into Jesus, into how the Messiah would operate. And he calls this Messiah the suffering servant. We have some beautiful chapters in Isaiah describing Jesus' uh, soon-to-be life, well, some more 400 years later, uh, but his, what kind of life he was going to have. It says he had no beauty. He had nothing to draw people toward him, but he was scorned. He was derided. He was tortured for our sake. By his wounds, we are healed. And he's writing all of these things. And he says that why, uh, uh, sorry, not why, but what needed to happen for the Messiah to live out his plan was for the people to reject him. So God knew that the people would reject him at that specific time in history, and therefore it was the perfect timing for Jesus to be there. I want you to hear this. God doesn't always work according to what you're going to do. He works according to what he wants to do, what he needs to do. And so when it says uh, all of that stuff, uh, God used their unbelief to accomplish his purposes. And that's something that we need to understand about the God that we serve. He's above what we can do. He's above anything that we could ever plan and purpose. There might be situations in your life where you see people that you love dearly that are struggling with unbelief. My prayer is that we can go, God, you can use that. You can bring your purposes and your plans into the situation, even though right now it doesn't look very promising, but you are still at work here. But the other thing that I want to point out is that it's quite scary to think that God hardened people's hearts, right? What does it mean by God hardened people's hearts? Let me give you an analogy. It's probably not the perfect analogy, but it's a pretty good one. Let's say you see someone who's extremely worked up. They're so worked up that they are going to hurt themselves. You know, they're getting a little bit violent, and maybe they're smashing their head against the wall, and you're like really worried. And so you have every intention to try to help this person step away from that brink of destruction, right? And so you say to this person, calm down. It'll be all right. We'll work this out. There's still a purpose for your life. What do you think that person does? They... They, they stop destroying themselves and they start destroying you, right? You know, that happens. Crazy people do crazy things. Does it matter that, did, did you intend to be hurt or to allow yourself to be in that position to be hurt by this person? No, your intention was to help this person, but you copped it because this person wasn't ready to listen. And so Carson writes about that, and he says that uh, what was happening is that God had sent these prophets in the Old Testament time and time again when the Israelites were turning from their belief in God and, and worshipping worthless, lifeless idols. And when the prophets came to these kings and to the nation and said, turn, turn, repent, God is here and he wants to heal. If you repent, then this evil will not befall you. What did they do to those prophets? 
They killed them and they put them in prison. That is what happened to Isaiah. And therefore, Isaiah was already lamenting for the future because he saw that God would even send his own son to, to the people to announce the coming kingdom, to announce that there is a way of life that truly brings life. There's a belief that leads to life. There is a way that leads to life. But what would they do to him? They would kill him. Not because God literally went, uh, oh, oh, Claire's wanting to believe. You know what? Let's have some fun here. Let's harden her heart. Let's make it like a rock so that she cannot receive my love. No, no, no. The Bible tells us, don't you know that it's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance? What does it mean that don't you know it's kindness that leads us to repentance except that kindness can sometimes lead us to pig-headedness, to evil and to destruction? And so this is really, really important as we head into the upper room discussion, uh, discourse. Because sometimes we think and examine our belief and we think, all of us do this, that we're believing the right way. We think that we're being led the right way. We think that what is happening is okay because it sits well with me. No, unbelief creeps in. And John himself, write, uh, John, John writes this. He doesn't say that God had so turned the people so that they could not believe. Because in verse 42, even after saying that he has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their heart, he says in verse 42, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they actually, there were tons of Jews that actually were like, that's the Messiah. That is the Messiah. But John writes this. It says, But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man much more than the glory that comes from God. What was he saying? They believed, but really they didn't believe. But instead, they stayed in a synagogue, the place that is supposed to represent belief. The place that is supposed to represent a lifestyle of belief. And so they hid themselves in the synagogues. They hid their belief in the synagogues, pretending that they were true believers. But John was saying, no, they weren't believers. Now, I want to put forward to you today, what does your belief look like? Is your belief loud and proud? Or is your belief hinged on whether people are going to respond well to you or not? Is your belief one of full-blooded, single-minded fellowship of Jesus? Or are you more concerned about being able to stay where things are comfortable. Because John writes, Jesus performed all the signs perfectly, and yet there were still people that were hiding in the synagogue. What is your synagogue? What is the way of living that you've carried on for so long that you're so happy to stay there? Is it your work schedule? Is it your workplace? Is it 
some relationships? Is it a lifestyle? Is it a vision of life where, where God is, is a genie? What is that synagogue? Where's the place that you're comfortable? Because one of the things that I've learned is that following Jesus, we always talk about Him being full of grace and so amazing, and it's absolutely true. I love the presence of God this morning as we were singing, but often the presence of God doesn't just come with this sense of peace in my heart because you know what? My soul fights against God all the time. And so when I'm in God's presence long enough, I get that, oh, He loves me. Oh, how He loves me. And then there's like, let that go, Nate. Surrender. No, He doesn't love me. I love my son to bits. But sometimes he doesn't know that I love him because I'm doing something that he doesn't want me to do. In the same way, so often, God's actually doing something for our good and maybe not just your good, but the good of the world. And it's not just about you. Life isn't about you. We tell that to Sam sometimes. No, you've chosen your Coco Melon song so often in the car. I want my music. Why? Because he's got to learn that his world is not the whole world. It is our world. But how are you responding to what God is doing in your life? Are you hiding in the synagogues or are you following Him fully? John doesn't allow us to stay in an in-between place. However, the crazy thing that I see in this is that I don't read John condemning people about this. Because in the very next section, as we head into the glory section of the Gospel of John, what happens next shows us that even John and the disciples struggle with unbelief. They had this wonderful experience of seeing Jesus welcomed in to Jerusalem with shouts of praise. They go to this upper room where they're like, man, Jesus, did you see them? They love you. They love us. We're going to take this place. Awesome. And so the king comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And then the king, it says, he strips off his outer garment and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. They were discussing how they were going to rule the kingdom. They went up the room, yeah, yeah. It was like, Houston, we have made it. High five. We are the best. We are the Americans. Sorry. <laughs> and they were like cheering, and Jesus started washing their feet. He gave them one final kind of lesson in that way. He was saying, you think that the king is here just to like profit off other people's worship and praise. The king's here to, to serve. And so he started to wash, his, wash their feet. It must have gone from like, yeah. And it said that they didn't know what to do. They were like, what's going on? And only Peter had the guts to, 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 to actually say something. And, and he said, Jesus, you will not wash my feet. You are the king. And then Jesus says to him, no, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. And so then Peter goes, oh, don't wash all of me then. 
Because why? What was going on? He didn't understand that this was a message that was being played out. We need to be washed by Jesus. We need to be washed by the Messiah. The stuff in our lives that we can't deal with, we need the Messiah to wash it. But Peter was saying, no, no, that's not how it works because my theology is that the king is the king and he stands up there and I might have dirty feet, but I still get to stand next to the king. And the king's like, no, you wash your feet before you stand next to me. He didn't get it. None of them did. They had seen the seven signs, plus, 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 heard all the teaching, had Jesus there explaining scripture, and they're like, what do you mean the king is a servant? A few moments later, they start to suffer, and then what happens next? Jesus then reveals, hey, one of you is going to betray me. There was an unbeliever in the closest, the second closest circle, I guess, to Jesus, Amongst the 12, there was an unbeliever. John wasn't trying to say that people uh, didn't believe and like poo-poo them, they're terrible. No, he was saying, we had no idea what was going on. God's ways are so much higher than my ways. And I don't always get it, but one thing I know is that if I continue to follow him, I will find life. If I continue to believe in him, I will find life. One more little section Peter's like, oh, stand with you, Jesus. Jesus predicts his death. We'll cover that next week. Um, and, and Peter's like, oh, stand with you. And then Jesus is like, nah, you're going to run. And not only are you going to run, you're going to deny me three times before the crow cries. John wasn't writing to condemn. He was writing about our human condition. To fight for our own selves, to fight for our own glory, and to fail to see the service, the beauty, and the love of our Savior. We pick and choose the signs that work well for us, but when they start to jar against how we want to live, we pull away. See, Lent is about a season of examining some of these things. I recently just uh, finished a book called Confessions by Saint Augustine. He was writing in four to five hundred um, uh, A.D., I believe, and it's about his confessions. And he was writing about how he he literally started to examine every part of his life, and he even started to say, "I went to the plays and the theater, and I knew that I was feeding myself. I can see that I was feeding myself. Oh God, that you would forgive me of that." And I started reading these things. And I'm like. What? You're confessing what? Do we need to forget? <laughs> like, Lord, last night I watched Netflix again. No, but it was just the fact that Augustine had this revelation of God's love for him so much so that he says, God, you are my only good. You are my only good. And I'm sorry for all the times that I pursued other good when I should have been pursuing my only good. Over Lent, I pray that this is the kind of examination that we give to ourselves because John, in his gospel, he saw himself and he probably was going like, I wasn't that much better. But still, he writes a gospel about making a decision about your belief. Mm -hmm. 
And that is what I want to put forward this morning. If we can get the band up, we're about to have communion together. As I was preparing this, this just kept coming back to me. Do I believe and confess the Lordship of Jesus in my life? Or am I hiding in the synagogues? Because Jesus is calling us into a life that is fully surrendered to Him, fully surrendered to what He says, fully surrendered to every aspect. Or are we in a place where yeah, 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 no, you know, in my heart, in my heart I believe Jesus and that's good enough. Stop it. Stop it, it's not good enough. Jesus says, if you deny me before man, I'll deny you before the Father. And I don't say this lightly, I don't say this to condemn, because like John, I know that I'm not that great myself. But still, John places it in his gospel. Part of the good news is believe and full fellowship. Full. 100%. Now, some of you need to consider taking this next step. Part of the church's tradition in showing this confession and commitment to Jesus is to get baptized. It's a public declaration of our faith. And it's also a wonderful opportunity because when you surrender yourself to Jesus publicly and say, I confess that you are my Lord and my Savior, I believe that God does something amazing. He does something to really step into that place. In my ideal planning, I would love to have baptisms on Easter Sunday as the church used to do. If you want to get baptized, you talk to me. We're going to get you ready. Because baptism isn't something that you... If you call it a dunk, I will dunk your head. Seriously, it's not a dunk. Stop it. Let's actually recognize how important this was. This was people literally getting baptized. And as they get baptized, some of them are being persecuted and killed for their confession. We don't face that in our world today. But I wish that our belief would cost us something. I wish that our belief would lead us to places of discomfort because we are getting thrown out of the synagogues where people are staying and thinking that I've built myself a place where I'm saved because I'm listening to God's word every single week. No. Our belief will cost us. Just as Jesus served us, the King serves us and washes us clean. Come on, church, we need to rediscover a wonder and awe and an appreciation for all that Jesus has done. As we hold His cup, as we hold His bread, Jesus said, this is my blood that was shed for you. This was my body that was broken for you. This is my life given to you that you may have life. So this morning, as you take the bread, as you take the cup, I want you to just imagine 
Jesus' life loving you, empowering you, gracing you for the week ahead. Come on, you can have communion together right now. Dear Jesus, I pray for our church. I pray that we never get tired or used to this idea that our God would save us, would serve us, would come and be here with us, would be present in our sinfulness and still love us. And I pray that as a church, we will commit to living a life of belief, full-fledged, complete fellowship, not half-hearted, not just in our hearts, but in our lives, God. I pray that our belief will drive us to live a life that is worthy of being called yours. God, I pray that we will pray prayers like Paul did, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. God, I pray that we would see that in our lives, that God, I pray that in our workplaces, in our family, in our society, we will see change because Christians are living not hiding in the synagogues, but confessing that Jesus is the Messiah, that He has proven Himself, He has shown that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who has died on the cross but rose on the third day, and that we can have life and life abundantly. My sin, my shame, He dealt with. He cast it aside as He paid the price so that God, that I may live before You. So God, I pray Hey, stir something up in our church. That as we read these words, as John asks us today, do you believe? I pray that we're able to say yes. Yes, God. Yes, I believe. Thank you, Jesus. Why don't we just stand this morning? Our time is up. But I just... I'm going to close in prayer, but I just want to give time because I want to do this myself. I sense that there needs to be a recommitment moment for for people that perhaps you've gotten used to, you've become maybe even a little flippant, or maybe you've never actually made a commitment to Jesus before. Well, this room's a great place to start and say, Jesus I believe and I want to follow with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my strength. If you want prayer this morning, we'll have people ready to pray with you if you're sensing that God's calling you to something more, to a decision perhaps that you are scared of. Well, that's why this community is here to stand with you because I believe that life is going to flow in this church through people who are living lives of full-blown belief. So God, I thank you for this wonderful church. I thank you that you sustained us, that you've been with us, your grace is upon us. But God, I pray that in this next season, that God, that we will take steps to be living full-fledged lives full-fledged faith in our everyday lives. God, I pray that we will cast aside everything that so easily entangles and and snares us and holds us back so that, God, we can live our lives fully for you. God, I pray, let sin fall off our lives. Let pride fall off our lives. Let the things that entangle fall off our lives, that, God, that we may be able to follow you fully. We thank you, Jesus, and I pray this in your name. Amen. It's the end of our gathering. You can head over to the foyer.
sign up for a 12-hour prayer. But if you're in a place where God is speaking to you, don't leave. Respond. Respond, respond. Come to God and say, God, I want to live full-fledged, believe in you. Show me how to. If you want prayer, come on forward. But thank you so much, church, for being here this morning. Thanks, Ben. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.